So this morning, we're starting a new sermon series on the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. We've enjoyed Luke. We're about halfway through Luke, and we are going to be, Lord willing, completing the gospel of Luke later on in 2021, but we thought it would be helpful for us to get some time in the Old Testament. We try to be doing both Old and New Testament, so digging into the book of Exodus. And the book of Exodus continues the story of God's people that was started in the book of Genesis. Now, we preached through Genesis a little while back, so let me give you a review of what's happened in the book of Genesis so you'll see what's happening in the book of Exodus. Now, here's a picture to give you an overview. So, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, powerful chapters, God creates the heavens and the earth, and the result is perfect, beautiful, astonishing creative work of God. And from looking at creation, we all can see that God has infinite power, that He is flawless and perfect in His wisdom, and that He and who He is, He's the, the joy we've been seeking all of our lives. He, he is our all-satisfying treasure. And so, when we look at creation and we see who God is, it's clear to us we have every reason to trust God perfectly, to obey Him instantly, and to seek our joy in Him passionately. That's what creation just tells us clearly. But tragically, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve did what we've all done. And that is they listened to Satan, the serpent, and they decided that they would be happier without God, that they would have more joy in walking away from God, seeking something else, that they did not need to obey God. And so they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 3, you can read about that. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is a picture of them saying, we're going to decide for ourselves from now on how we're going to live. Now, that's sin. That's what the Bible calls sin, and it changed everything. God is just, and in His justice, He must punish sin. And so, from that point, God caused the whole world to come under His curse, the curse of His judgment. And so, look at the world. That's why the problems are. It's the sin that we've committed and the curse of God's judgment, which is over the world. That's what's happened because of Adam and Eve's sin and our sin. The whole world is under God's curse. But in Genesis chapter 3, we don't just read that God brought His curse upon the world. We read a precious, powerful, encouraging promise that God gives in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God is talking to Satan, the serpent, about one of Eve's offspring, one of Eve's descendants. And look at what he says, and just, I took this portion of verse 15. God says to the serpent, he, that is one of Eve's descendants, some human being, he shall bruise your head, and you, the serpent, shall bruise his heel. So what this means is that one of Eve's descendants is going to bruise Satan's head, which means he will destroy Satan. Some human being is going to be born in the future. The curse is here now, but some human being is going to be born in the future who will destroy Satan's work. So, 
Church, who is this descendant of Eve who destroyed Satan's work? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And in the process of destroying Satan, Satan bruised Jesus' heel, which is a much more minor wound, but it's the picture of the suffering that Jesus did on the cross. So I, I love this. This is amazing. All the way back in the very first book of the Bible, in the third chapter of the first book of the Bible, we see a prophecy given about the coming of Jesus, who will destroy Satan's work. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Then, in Genesis 4 through 11, tragically, we see sin spreading throughout the whole world. And at the end of Genesis chapter 11, everyone, from what we can read in Genesis 11, everyone is rebelling against God. Everyone is enslaved to sin, and the whole world is under God's curse. It's a tragic, seemingly hopeless-looking situation. But then, more mercy. Genesis chapter 12, this is amazing. God comes to Abraham, Abraham the idol worshiper, Abraham the man who was rebellious against God. God comes to Abraham and promises him, Abraham, if you will trust me, I will lead you to a land you've never seen before, and I will make of you a great nation there, a great nation, and I will give to your descendants this amazing land, land flowing with milk and honey, we read later on, and Abraham, one of your descendants, one of your offspring, is going to free people from every nation, tongue, and tribe, free people from every people group from the curse of Satan and bring them into the blessing of God. Genesis chapter 12, amazing promise. Now, who is this descendant of Abraham who frees people from the curse of Satan and brings them into the blessing of God? It's Jesus. The same offspring of Eve is also an offspring of Abraham and is the Messiah, Jesus, who fulfills these promises. Now, through the rest of Genesis then, we've got Abraham's life, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Through the rest of Genesis, we see God repeating this promise, these promises, and elaborating on these promises, and then also securing and protecting these promises. So, for example, He repeats this promise in Genesis chapter 15, verse 8, the promise that He will give this nation, the people of Abraham, a vast land. Look at Genesis 15, 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Well, that's a massive area, and God's going to give this to Abraham's people. God also promises that they're going to grow into be a very large nation. Look at Genesis twenty-two seventeen. I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. It's a large nation. And then in verse 18, Genesis 22, 18, he repeats the promise that one of his offspring will free people from every ethnic group 
from Satan's curse and bring them into the blessing of God. Look at verse 18. And Abraham, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. That's Jesus doing that. That's the Messiah again. So all through the life of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, we see God repeating and elaborating on His promises, but He also secures and protects these amazing promises. Abraham's wife, Sarah, couldn't have children. Well, that's a problem if you're going to become a great nation, many as the sand of the seashore. And God promised them, I'm going to give you a child. But decades went by, but finally, when they were past 90 years old, God gave them Isaac, their son Isaac, and said, through Isaac, these promises are going to be fulfilled. Then a famine came into the land, massive famine, threatening the people of Israel, but God had already sent Joseph into Egypt. Joseph became the number two man over all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, and was put in charge of all of Egypt's food stocks. And because of Joseph's amazing administration and wisdom, Pharaoh just welcomed all of Joseph's family and lavished blessings upon them. They settled in one of the choicest places in Egypt, had all the food that they needed, and God was protecting those promises through protecting His people through Joseph. And you see that kind of thing happening all through the book of, of Genesis. So that brings us to the end of Genesis. Okay, quick review there of Genesis. But so now all of us Bible readers, we're wondering, okay, so but the promises haven't been fulfilled yet. What's, what happens next with these promises? Will the people of Israel become a large nation? Will they receive a beautiful, glorious, vast land? And will the Messiah be born to one of them who will free us from the curse and bring us into God's blessing? And that brings us to the book of Exodus, where these questions continue to be answered. So let's start by asking, how does the book of Exodus open? And look at how it starts in verses 1 through 7. Verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel, sons of Jacob, Israel, who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. So all 12 tribes are not very big yet, there's just 70 of them, but all 12 tribes are represented there, 70 total people in verses 1 through 5. Then look at verse 6, then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Egypt is filled with the people of Israel. They're multiplying, growing, filling the land. So do you see God is fulfilling the promise that Abraham's nation, this great nation, is going to become very big, many, many people. But what happens next? Start reading in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now remember, the previous king, the previous pharaoh, had made Joseph the number two man in all of Egypt, overseeing the food sources, everything else, and had lavished blessings upon Joseph and upon his people. 
But now there's a new king who did not know Joseph, and that means trouble. Verse 9, and he, this king, Pharaoh, said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses, but the more they, people of Israel, were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So this new king was frightened by how large this people group was that wasn't Egyptian, and he tried to kill them off with heavy labor. But the Israelites multiplied even more. It's God's promise. He's kept multiplying. So the Egyptians feared them even more. And then look at what they did in verse 13. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. It's getting worse. And made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Notice that word slaves is repeated twice in those, in those verses. So Egypt was enslaving or had enslaved now all of the people of Israel, making them work even harder, hoping to kill them off. But it gets even worse. Can you imagine? It gets worse. Verse 15, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, ready to give birth, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied. See God fulfilling this promise and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. This is an amazing thing. So the king, Pharaoh, told all the Israelite midwives, if it's a boy that's born, kill him. Kill him. Now, feel what a terrible threat that is to God's promise. Because if all the baby boys are killed, the nation will be gone, right? It'll just disappear. But the midwives rightly disobeyed Pharaoh, disobeyed the king, and let the Israelite boys live. But Pharaoh does not give up. One more plan. Verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, all of Egypt, royal edict from the king, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile River, but you shall let every daughter live. So all the people of Egypt are commanded, when you see an infant Israelite boy, throw him into the Nile River so that he drowns. 
all the people of Egypt have this command given to them by the king. And you see what that would mean if that happened? That would mean that God could not keep His promises. He could not keep the promise of making a great nation of Abraham's descendants. He could not keep the promise of giving this great nation a great land because the nation would not be there. And He certainly could not have the Messiah born from this great nation because there would be no great nation. So this would have destroyed the possibility of God keeping His promise here. So if you were an, an Israelite living in Egypt at that time when verse 22 is going on, all of Egypt has been told to kill all of your baby boys when they see them, throw them into the Nile River so they drown, you'd be thinking at this point, it's over. Would have been nice. Those were really great promises, but I guess it's just not going to happen. It's not going to take place. We would have thought God's promises were impossible to be fulfilled at that point. And, and the reason I want to stress this from the passage this morning is that all of us can struggle from time to time thinking that God's promises will be fulfilled for us, don't we? We all can tend to start to doubt that God's really going to be able to fulfill His promises for us. And I would guess that some of you right now are right now struggling to trust one promise or another. And you're not unusual. Every follower of Jesus, every single one of us in this room this last week has struggled to believe God's promises, right? Every one of us. So we need to focus on what's going on here. But now this does raise a question we need to be clear about. What exactly are God's promises? And I want to raise that because there is confusion about what God has or has not promised to His people today. Let me give you two examples. One, some Christians think that God promises in the Bible that if you are truly committed to Jesus Christ, then you won't have any trials. You'll have a stress-free life. No suffering, no difficulties. Well, I just want to tell you that that is not what the Bible teaches. That is not what God promises. And if you think that is what God promises, you're going to be dis disappointed in God for, for no good reason. Remember what Jesus said in John 16, In the world, you, my followers, faithful to me, who love me, who are trusting me, you will have tribulation. He promises this. And think about Job, who was the most righteous man in the whole world described in the Old Testament. Or think about the Apostle Paul, both godly, godly men, both of whom suffered terribly in their lives. So let's just get that out of our minds. God nowhere promises that this side of heaven we're going to be free from suffering and trials. Now, in heaven, glory, no more trials, never again. You'll know no suffering whatsoever, but that's not true for now. One other example. Others think that if we just pray hard enough and believe hard enough that God will always heal every sickness we have. I think people mean well who teach that, but friend, that's not what the Bible teaches. In heaven, glory, yes. No more sickness, no more pain, no more death. But the Bible does not teach that God will always heal us of all our sicknesses now. But you might say, well, no, wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible promise, Psalm 103, He heals 
all of our sicknesses, and the Bible absolutely does promise that, but we need to study what the rest of the Bible says, and it becomes clear that that promise means He will heal in this life many sicknesses, or if not in this life, He will heal them all in the life to come. God does heal sicknesses. That's why we pray for the sick here at Grace Church, but He does not promise to heal every sickness if we just believe enough. So I just want to be clear, it's very important that we study God's Word to learn God's promises, and that we look at the context and other passages to be sure we're clear on those promises. And when we do that studying, glory! The Bible is full of hundreds of amazing promises of what the God of the universe will do for everyone who is trusting Jesus. Full of promises. I I hope that you're starting to memorize promises. Maybe you have a little notebook where you're jotting down promises as you come upon them. We need to be learning God's promises. But even though we study God's promises and we read God's promises and understand them correctly, we still will have times where we struggle to believe God's promises. Example, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God promises that everyone who's trusting Jesus, everyone, when you're tempted, He will always provide a way of escape. Jot that down, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. It's an amazing promise that God gives to us. But even though that promise is there, have you ever felt so overwhelmed by a promise, so like filled with this, I'm sorry, not overwhelmed with a promise, overwhelmed with a temptation, so gripped and enslaved by a temptation you think, there's just no way I'm not going to sin now. I have felt that way. I imagine you have too. And so in those times, we can doubt that God's going to keep His promise to us. Another example, Matthew 12, 31. Jesus promises that everyone who trusts Him will receive forgiveness for all His or her sins. All of them. And yet, even though that promise is there, even though we know that that's what Jesus' death on the cross did. It paid for the sins of all who will trust Him. We can still have times where we doubt that we can be forgiven for, well, yeah, that sin, that sin, that sin, but, but not that sin. Maybe, like, that was just, I sinned too long in that sin. Or maybe it, I hurt too many people by that sin. Or I dishonored God too much by that sin, right? And we can doubt that God is going to fulfill that promise to us. So, I want you to ask yourself this morning, are you struggling right now today with trusting one of God's promises to you? Are you struggling to trust God's promises? Are you doubting one of God's promises today? If you are, this is a serious problem, and we all struggle with it. I do, and and you do, but it's a serious problem. As we will see in the rest of Exodus, that was Israel's problem, was unbelief. And the horrible consequences that come when we persist in unbelief. So we need to fight unbelief with all our might. But let me just give you some more illustrations so that you can get in touch with if this is what's going on with you right now. For example, God promises in Psalm 19 to use His Word to change your heart. Are you trusting that He can do that? If your heart is full of discouragement or fear, that God's Word can, pro- can set you free from that discouragement and that fear. Do you trust that promise? Or God promises to provide for all of your financial needs. 
not, not making us rich, but every need, every financial need, He will meet. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. Are you struggling to trust that promise this morning? He promises to give you all the wisdom you need. Maybe you're facing a big decision with child raising, or maybe you've got a big business problem you're dealing with at work, or whatever it might be. But God promises in James chapter 1, verse 5, to give you all the wisdom you need when you ask Him in Jesus' name. And are you trusting that God will use every trial, every trial in your life, to bring you more joy in Him now and more joy in Him forever? 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Are you trusting that promise or are you doubting that, well, this trial was so big, there's just no way that that can happen? So I hope you understand that this is something we deal with all the time. We are always battling unbelief, which can rise up in our hearts where we don't think God's going to fulfill this promise to me. And at the end of Exodus chapter 1, many in Israel, I'm sure, if not all of them, struggled to believe now that this edict had gone out to all of Egypt that all the baby boys should be killed by the Egyptians, I would not be at all surprised if they felt like it's over. God's not going to be able to fulfill His promises. It's done. Would have been nice. Too bad. But it's not over. It is not over. What does God do? This is amazing. Chapter 2. Start reading in verse 1. Exodus chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. She knew what the command had been given to the Egyptians. She knew what would happen to her son if an Egyptian saw him, so she hid him for three months. Then verse 3, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. This is like tar, pitch, to waterproof it, okay? She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. So we're all on the edge of our seats now saying, what's going to happen? Why are we hearing about this one baby? What's, what's God going to do? And what God does is He works a miracle here. Verse 5, now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. See, God can direct people to go do all kinds of things. So He directs her down to the river while her young women walked beside the river. She, the daughter of Pharaoh, saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. So Pharaoh's daughter, okay, this is a very important woman, okay, Pharaoh's daughter, we're talking major royalty here. God has her go down to the river, has her find the basket, has her open the basket, and has her feel pity in not doing what Pharaoh would have wanted her to do. He would have wanted her to take that boy and throw him into the Nile River to drown. But God put pity in her heart, so she wanted to take care of him. Gets even more amazing. Verse 7. 
Then his sister, very smart little girl, said to Pharaoh's daughter, uh, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, mommy, <laughs> come. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Now think about this. If you were this baby's mother, hiding, fearful of what might happen, your child has just been adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. We're talking protection, okay? Major protection going on here. Not only that, you have custody. <laughs> How did that happen? And you're going to get paid for nursing your baby. Don't you love God? He loves to do that. We're just like saying, whoa, this is incredible. Verse 10, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, the mother of the baby, back to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Who is this baby? This is Moses. God brought Moses into the world and protected him and brought him into Pharaoh's household. Oh, if you've read Exodus, or if you've read Genesis, you're thinking, oh, good things are coming. Good things are coming here. God's not worried about his promises. God's got a plan. So think about this. At the end of chapter one, all it looked like all the Israelite boys were going to be killed. But here we see God saving one Israelite boy, Moses. And who's Moses? Spoiler alert, you know, when Moses grows up, he frees the people of Israel. God uses him to free the people of Israel from Egypt, leads them out of Egypt, through the wilderness, to the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, where they grow and grow and grow and grow, and hundreds of years in the future, Jesus is born from one of them, the Messiah. God fulfills all His promises. So, Let's, let's, let's land this plane. What, what does this mean for us? What should we walk out of here thinking this morning? Let me give you three encouragements. First, simply this, God keeps all His promises. He keeps them all. Because you are trusting Jesus, trusting Him as your Savior, I can't be good enough to be saved, I need a Savior, He's my Savior, His death on the cross. Because you're trusting Jesus as your Savior and because you're trusting Jesus as your Lord. I love how some of you Indian brothers and sisters, you, you pray and you talk about Master, Master. Because you're trusting Jesus as your Lord, your Master. He is your authority. It doesn't mean you're sinless, but it means every area of sin in your life, you're battling, you're confessing, you're fighting. You're trusting Him as your Lord, Savior, Lord, and you're trusting Him as your treasure, your heart-satisfying treasure, because you're trusting Jesus as your Savior, Lord, and treasure. That means that every one of God's promises in His Word, He will keep for you. Now look at Joshua 21.45 to drive that point home. Not one word, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. 
Okay, quiz time, church. How many promises did God not fulfill for Israel? It's not a trick question. Zero, okay, zero. How many words in those promises were fulfilled? All of them. Not one word fails. So God keeps all His promises. Secondly, so important, trust all that God has promised in Jesus the Messiah. I just want to address those of you here this morning or are listening uh, through video. Uh, if you're here this morning and you have not yet come to the place in your life where you're putting your trust in Jesus as your Savior, and as your Lord, and as your joy, your treasure, we are really glad you're here and that you're watching or listening this morning. And I'm praying that because of what you've seen this morning in Exodus chapter 1, 2, and the whole book of Genesis, that you will see that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah, the Messiah promised thousands of years before. Jesus is the Messiah. And that through trusting Jesus, His death, His resurrection, His commands, His promises, through trusting Jesus, He will free you from the curse and bring you into God's blessing and you could leave here this morning knowing the living God with the blessing of knowing the God, having, knowing God, having God's love and presence in your life through Jesus Christ. So, trust all that God has promised in Jesus Christ. And then third, if you're doubting some promise, learn from this passage. Look at Romans 15 verse 4. Here's what Paul says about the Old Testament. You might think, this is an Old Testament passage. Why should we be studying the Old Testament? Here's why. For whatever was written in former days, Old Testament, was written for our instruction, New Testament believers' instruction. The Old Testament was written for us, so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So one reason God gave us the Old Testament Let's get more specific. One reason God gave us the book of Exodus, more specific, one reason God gave us Exodus chapters 1 and 2 is to strengthen our trust in His promises. So think about the impossible situation that Israel faced at the end of Genesis chapter 1. It looked impossible, but it was not impossible. It didn't stop God. And I want you to think about your seemingly impossible situation. Think about it. That situation won't stop God. For example, are you feeling overwhelmed with guilt for your sin? He has promised to forgive you for that sin and every sin as you're trusting Jesus. He's promised that. Are you captured by some temptation? It's just so strong in your heart now, you're not sure that you can resist it any longer. He's promised to free you from that temptation as you seek Him. He's promised. Not one word of God's promises fail. Are you discouraged about your future? Things look bleak, hopeless. He's promised that in Jesus Christ, He has amazing plans for you. Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13. Are you going through trials? That can be so painful and heartbreaking, and our hearts weep with you, but God promises that He's going to use that trial to bring you even more joy in Christ now and forever. So, oh, be strong. He will do 
that. He always does that for his people. And then let's talk about COVID for a second. Are you, are you just tired of COVID and masks and social distancing and Zoom calls? Are you like done with this? It's done? Okay, amen? Yes. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, I think it is. Those who wait on the Lord, those who wait on the Lord, who open up the Scriptures, who pray, say, God, I'm just tired. I'm just cranky. I'm, I'm just, help me. I don't like Zoom calls anymore. Help me. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Promise. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. You'll be soaring like the eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And not one word of that promise does God not keep. Keeps every word. So, Pharaoh couldn't stop God from fulfilling His promises. No situation can stop God from fulfilling His promises, which means nothing's going to stop God from fulfilling His promises to you as you're trusting Jesus Christ. So, trust Him. Trust Him. Trust Jesus, your Savior, your Lord, your treasure. Trust Him. Every promise God will fulfill. Let's stand together. I'll pray. Lord, use your word now as you promised to do as we set our hearts on you to strengthen faith for all of us in this room and to give faith right now to those who have not yet been trusting you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.